Psalm 9 is written during a time of crisis in David's life. Yet it is a triumphant song of thanksgiving for justice. In his hour of trouble, he turns to the Lord. He praises the Lord for his righteousness and justice in judging wicked nations and for being the eternal judge who, who the oppressed and afflicted can trust. Psalm 9 demonstrates that God is the living God who is active in human history and life. The inscription at Psalm 9 informs us that it is a psalm of David written for the choir director. That is, it was used in worship. The phrase Muth Laban is the name of the tune to which the psalm was set. It translates literally as the death of the sun. Psalm 9 is also written in an acrostic pattern based on the Hebrew alphabet. Verse 1 and 2 begin with the letter Aleph, verse 3 and 4 begin with the letter Baith, and so on. Psalm 9 covers the first 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The last 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet are used in Psalm 10. As such, Psalm 9 and 10 were once one psalm, which is reflected in the ancient manuscripts and translations such as the Septuagint. And so as we come to Psalm chapter 9, we find a triumphant song of thanksgiving for justice. We're going to divide this psalm into three parts. First, we're going to see the thanksgiving in verses 1 through 6. We'll see the testimony in verses 7 to 14. And finally, the triumph in verses 15 to 20. As we consider again Psalm chapter 9, a triumphant song of thanksgiving for justice. Let's begin with the thanksgiving in verses 1 to 6. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins. And you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. Psalm 9, 1 through 6. Psalm 9 begins with David's declaration of intent. He's de declaring his thanksgiving, and it is total and comes with all his heart. Now the heart is considered by the Hebrews to be the seat of thought, and so David worships with full consciousness. He's engaging his mind and his memory. This is no rote prayer. This is no mumbled hymn. He's investing himself totally in his worship. And we see here that both the majesty of God and the urgency of his need call forth his best prayer. He becomes specific. He says, I will tell you of all your wonders. Now, the word wonders here means all of that which is surpassing, extraordinary, and wonderful. In the Exodus, the plagues are called God's wonderful works. In Exodus 3.20, God said to Moses, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders. Same word is used here in Psalm 9, which I will do in its midst. David then is praising God for his miraculous direct intervention. And recalling God's work opens up his heart. He says, I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name. The mighty acts of God reveal his character. We do not worship God's works, but we worship the worker, and his works should cause us to worship him. And notice the title here used for God, 
O Most High, which often appears throughout the Psalms. It expresses that God is transcendent over all other powers and created beings. David now turns from the context of worship to the content of judgment. Strengthened by his praise, his faith is renewed. He's confident that God is going to deliver him. And he says, first, they're going to be routed. They will, be, they will turn back and retreat. And second, this will lead to their stumbling or falling. This is the sign of their collapse. And third, they will perish. See, it is the presence of God that guaranteed Israel's life. God promised Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Here too, the divine presence in David's life means the defeat of all his enemies because sin and Satan cannot stand before the numinous presence and power of our Lord. David continues, For you have maintained my just cause. You see, when God defeats his enemies, David exercises his, uh, or excuse me, God exercises his judgment against their injustice and vindicates David. David confesses, you sat on the throne judging righteously, which leads to a vivid description of the end of these evil nations. You have rebuked the nations. Here that word rebuke gives the idea that God is a fierce warrior who's crying out in anger, driving away David's enemies. And the nations will vanish before his judgments. He has destroyed the wicked. Their name is gone. It's blotted out. And with their name, so goes their memory. And it's the same as true of us as when our enemies are destroyed, such as the power of sin and Satan, over, his power over us is broken, our faith in God is vindicated. Jesus is our righteousness. In his name we are saved. And all of our enemies will perish. There will come a day when their names will not be remembered. Their memory will be gone to be remembered no more. So that's David's thankfulness. He's thankfulness. He's thankful, rather, for what God has done. He's thankful that God has caused his enemies to be routed, to be turned back, to perish, and to stumble and fall. God has taken up David's cause because God is a God of justice. And God takes up for the oppressed, for the humble, for the poor. Look at the testimony here in verses 7 to 14. Psalm 9, 7 to 14. But the Lord abides forever. Here's David's testimony about the Lord. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He'll execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the people his deeds. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may dwell, tell of all your praises, that in the gates of the daughters of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Psalm 9, 7-14. See, David now contrasts the temporal passing of his enemies with the eternal power of Yahweh. The Lord, Yahweh, abides forever. The Hebrew verb abide means to sit or remain. He sits forever on his throne. He remains forever. He is the eternal sitting judge. He is the absolute by which our lives are measured and, by, and to which our lives are accountable. As verse 8 says, he shall administer judgment for the people with equity. God is always equitable. He is always fair and just contrary to the judges that we see in this wicked world. 
In verse 9, David's thought turns from his enemies to his friend. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed. Here's God, the avenging warrior king, judge to his enemies, but a secure fortress for those who are oppressed. The oppressed find protection in God in times of trouble. Verse 10 provides the positive meaning of the stronghold metaphor. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. See, those who know God's name are God's people. He calls them by name and they call him by name. That relationship is secured because God is their protection, their stronghold, their fortress. Because to know Yahweh is to trust in him. In fact, the verb trust means to feel secured, to be unconcerned. The oppressed feel secure in God as their refuge because he is trustworthy. That word refuge gives further meaning as David returns to prayer. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. See, God is trustworthy because he does not leave or abandon us. When we seek him, he is there, he answers. We, get, we are given here the assurance of the destruction of our enemy by the God who reigns forever and eternity. And at the same time, this same God is our fortress when we flee to him. The God of judgment is also the God of mercy for his people. And so David now calls us to worship. Having meditated on God's judgment, having meditated on God's mercy, David is again ready for praise. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. See, worship needs a witness. As David continues here, declare his deeds amongst the people. The mighty acts of God evoke praise. When we see God's hand at work, the natural response is to praise him. The living God who does work on our behalf is to be worshipped. As Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundant above all that we think and ask, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory or praise in the church of God. Now the specific deeds that David witnesses are, are now given. He says God is to be praised when he avenges blood. That is, God judges evil, repays injustice, executes the murders, and defeats his enemies. He's to be praised. That when God executes his judgment, he remembers his people. He does not forget the cry of the humble. The humble here are the poor, the afflicted, the weak. And as Proverbs 3.34 says, Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. See, God is to be worshipped as he executes his judgment and redemption. And after David experiences God's mercy, and after he promises worship and witness to tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion, he's been delivered from the gates of death. He's now going to praise God in the gates of Jerusalem or the gates of the temple. The daughters of Zion refers to the people of Jerusalem. In Jewish culture, cities were often regarded as mothers of their people. And the inhabitants were referred to as the sons and daughters of X, Y, or Z city. Here's David in his capital city, where the temple is, where the tabernacle at that point. And he's recounting praise. He's rejoicing in God's salvation. His praises are the expression of thanks for Yahweh's marvelous works. And he sums up all of God's saving acts in a word, salvation. See, the point of God's mercy here is not merely for our own self-satisfaction. See, God shows us mercy not to satisfy us, but he shows us mercy so that we will praise him, give him glory, and it's expressed in our worship. When God delivers us from our enemies, he delivers us from ourselves, we are now free to praise him. And that praise is to be in the gate. That's to be in the place where the congregation gathers. We give him praise as a witness 
of God's love and power. Finally, verses 15 to 20, we have the triumph. Psalm 9, 15 to 20. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, in the net which they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. Higion Selah. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. The nations now receive God's judgment. It's expressed in his passive wrath. Basically, he lets their sin run its course. And when sin runs its course, it destroys the sinner. And that's God's judgment. You can clarify that with Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. The nations are pictured as hunters who've set a trap for David. However, these nations have fallen into the very pit that they themselves dug to catch David. Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.26 that those who reject sound teaching have been snared by the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. See, part of God's judgment on our rebellion is to turn us over to Satan. In his sovereignty, he even uses the devil as an instrument of his righteous will. And God's judgment is seen here, in this case, in the nations being caught in their own trap fact of the matter is, Satan's not all-powerful. But God uses Satan to accomplish his will. The fact is, God will judge us, sometimes, with our own sin. He'll let sin run its course, and then when we experience the consequences of that sin, that's God's judgment. Sometimes he will use Satan to bring that judgment into our life as well. And then, outside of believers, the same is true of the world. And he will use the world's own foolishness to bring its own judgment upon itself. David goes on to say, The Lord has made himself known, and he has executed judgment. You know, if, if we would simply and rightly look and view at the internal, internal judgments of history upon oppression... Look at various times in history at oppression and then look at the judgment that has come before because of that or because of segregation. Look at, the, look at what's happened because of segregation and what that's caused. All of those reactions, all of the turmoil, all of the upheaval, right, wrong, or indifferent, ultimately is God's judgment because of the evil of oppression or segregation. How about the exploitation of the poor? When they finally rise up and overturn the system and, and turn it again, guess what? That's God's judgment coming down on those who've exploited the poor. These are all the judgments of God. When we oppress people, make no mistake, people will in turn rise up and rebel. And while rebellion is not right or just, and God calls rebellion sin, God will use that sin of rebellion to judge the sin that led to the rebellion. Something to think about. See, God may not intervene dramatically, but he does intervene at the right time. The judgments anticipate an active, direct, and final judgment that God will bring that will be absolute and from which no one will escape. 
one in which the wicked will be turned into Sheol, the place of the dead. They are part of all the nations that forgot God, David says. The word forgot literally means to forsake. The needy, although apparently forgotten by the world, will not always be so. Yahweh is a refuge in time of trouble and does not forget the cry of the humble, the oppressed, or the needy. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. The hope of the poor will be realized. See, the Lord says in Psalm 1-6 that he knows the way of the righteous and the way of the ungodly will perish. And what David suggests here is that for the present moment, while the wicked appear to prosper, and while the needy and the poor appear to only have their hope to sustain them, help is on the way. God's intervention is on the rise. And there is the time when the poor will experience his saving grace and the wicked will experience the bitter fruit of their own sin. That is death. The final two verses of Psalm 9 form David's call for a fully realized judgment from God. He summons God to arise, stand up from the throne, enter the battle, overcome fallen humanity, overcome the wicked, and bring his judgment and his vindication of his name to the nations. See, when the wicked are confronted by him, by his presence, then justice will be done. And the result of God's intervention will be that the nations will be put in fear of Yahweh. They will know themselves to be but men, not the gods they presume themselves to be. They'll cry out with Isaiah, Woe is me. They will fall down like Peter and say, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. And they will receive justice, and the righteous will shine like the sun. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this psalm of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for justice. There is, this is a triumphant song. Because Father, whoever the oppressed may be and wherever the oppressed are, God, you've not forgotten them. Whether your people are oppressed, you have not forgotten them. Or whether the people throughout the world are oppressed, you have not forgotten them. You are a God of justice. You are a God of equity. And you will take up the cause of the oppressed, of the humble, of the poor, and of the needy. And Father, I thank you for that great truth. Father, I thank you that you work on behalf of those that are humble, poor, needy, oppressed, the brokenhearted. And that, Father, while the world may forget them, while the world may look down their nose at them, while the world may deride them, Father, you do not. But rather, Lord, you take up their cause. Instead, Lord, you will cry out against the oppressors. You will cry out against the wicked. You will cry out against those who lay a trap for others. And Father, you'll spring that trap on them, on them, on themselves. Father, you will bring them to justice. And in the same way in which they have forgotten those that they oppress, Father, you will forget them. Their name will be blotted out and remembered no more. Father, I thank you that you are not just a God of judgment, but you're a God of mercy. And that, Father, as your people, we receive that mercy. I pray, Lord, that we would, who have received much mercy, would demonstrate that mercy. We would be people of mercy. That, Father, as a church, we might be a beacon 
to a lost world, to those in this world who are oppressed, who are humbled, who are weak, who are oppressed, that we might be a beacon, a stronghold, a picture of you to them. And that, Father, in seeing mercy from us, they might see your mercy and might come to that saving grace. We pray this in your son's matchless name. Amen.